free at last. What a time. Passover, Pesach. A time of our freedom, a time of our liberty as a nation, right? As the people of Israel and as the people of God. God is in the business of setting the captive free because he loves his creation. Let's um, pray together and pray after me. Well, pray with me. Depends. Pray after me. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and our King, give me eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to perceive, and the will to obey the word that I hear today in Yeshua's name. Today I will continue in our series, Free at Last, and we're basing this series on the four promises given by God to B'nai Yisrael, found in Shemot, Exodus chapter 6. Let me refresh your memory by reading the text. I'm going to start at verse 2, just to give context to the passage. God also said to Moshe, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Promise one. That's our first cup at our Passover Seder, commemorates that promise. I will free you from being slaves to them. That's cup number two and our second promise from God. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Promise three, cup three. And I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Promise four. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So if you ever wonder if Israel has a right to the land, that verse says it's crystal clear. God gave us the land. Period. End the discussion. That's just how it is. If anyone has a problem with that, you have to take it up with God. And I wouldn't suggest that. (laughs) P.S. God is a holy God. God means what he says and says what he means. And that's what he said as his promise to Israel. Last week, Rabbi Carroll spoke on the first promise, which states, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Everyone know what a yoke is, right? A yoke is when an animal is paired up to another animal, right? And that yoke is, you know, it's oppressive, (laughs) okay? It's a yoke, it's... Uh, it's not a happy, you wouldn't want to be in a yoke. <laughs> you would want to say, hey, Rabbi, I just, you know, instead of going to the spot today, I'm going to go and get under the yoke and get crunched down and get ready for some work. No, you don't want to be under a yoke or bound, if you would. You want to be free. And from this short statement, which is promised too, he says that I will free you, say free you, from being slaves to them. And from this short statement, a lot can be gleaned that can lead us to a place of freedom so that we can truly say that we are free at last. An article I was reading this week said it might appear that this second phrase simply reiterates the same thing as the first promise with a few changes in wording. Comparing I am the Lord and I will bring you out, of, out from under the yoke of the, of the Egyptians to I will free you from being slaves to them. I will deliver, not Saul, I will deliver you from their bondage. Okay. Avodah. A closer look, however, shows that this second phrase gives us additional insights to bring out found in the first promise, implies a change of status, okay? To deliver, right, found in the second promise, right, I will free you 
from being slaves hit salty, um, suggests that Israel is helpless, hear me, to affect the change herself. So I will bring you out is a wonderful promise. Think about being chained and shackled. For God to say, I will bring you out from that, isn't that wonderful? I would imagine if someone chained you up, right, hand and foot and kind of locked you to a concrete floor, you would appreciate getting out, wouldn't you? Absolutely. But you know what it's like the first, comparing the first promise to the second promise is if someone would come and toss down a key to you and you were able to get free from the chains. Now that's a wonderful thing, right? A wonderful promise. I will bring you out from under the yoke. But the second promise says, I will rescue you. And it would be as if, now that you're free, you find yourself in a concrete cylinder a mile high with smooth walls. And you're unable to climb out. Though you have a measure of freedom, you still realize that, wow, I can't get out of this place unless someone comes to rescue me. I need to be rescued from this place. That's the second promise. That God promises that he will rescue us. Do something for us that we cannot do ourselves. At that point, when they're staring up at a mile, can you imagine a mile high? (laughs) That's far. They would come to understand that in order for them to get out and get on with their life, they must be rescued. Hitzalti. God will rescue you. Every year in the Seder we say, right, that we are to consider ourselves as if we personally have been rescued from Egypt. Current tense, that God is the God who rescues us. You see, we are these people, and we are in need of rescue. I want to give you just two points today. The first one is really coming to understand our need of rescue. You might say to me, Rabbi, I am no longer in need of rescue because I have embraced the Messiah. Hey, is not Messiah our ultimate redeemer? Absolutely. See, our embracing of Yeshua the Messiah does atone for our sins according to what the prophet had said, right? And cleanses us from unrighteousness. Unfortunately, the enemy of our souls comes to people to ensnare them back again into patterns of sin and idolatry that they had before. Just like he did with the people of Israel, right? Right? They struggled, even though they left Egypt, they struggled with sin and idolatry all through the wilderness wanderings. And if you wonder how it can be that a believer, someone who God has rescued or God has brought out, how that person can struggle, just read the letter to the Messianic community in Rome, Romans chapter 7. And you see the great Rav Shaul, the great contemporary of Yochanan ben Zakkai, the rabbi of rabbis, right, that we owe probably a good one-third of the Brit Chadashah to. And he says this, that the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, these are the things that I do. Oh, what a wretched man am I. You see, he, though being a godly man, though being brought out himself, found himself struggling with sin and habitual sin and habits that he needed rescue from. Well, if it's true for Shaul, it's definitely true for us. Others have been born from above but never fully realize the freedom they have in Messiah because they don't appropriate it by faith. You know, faith isn't a new covenant concept, right? 
Abraham, right, was considered righteous because of his faith. It's always been faith. Faith in the living God and what the living God could do for us. Not for what we could do for ourselves. That's religion. Religion is I'm going to earn my way to God. I'm going to get out of this cylinder myself somehow, some way. And if you look at religions in general, you see people trying to climb the wall of that cylinder to get out. Only to be so frustrated. I can't get out. I can't get out of this place. I'm doing all the right things, but I can't get out. Religion will always leave you frustrated. It will always fall short. So these folks, some of us here, have faith that sins are forgiven well enough through the blood of Yeshua, but they fail to appropriate the same faith to be rescued away from certain ungodly behaviors. And I want you to hear me today. I'm going to be talking a little bit about the three-letter S word called sin. But I want you to hear it in this way because this is the heart in which I'm delivering it. God wants you free. I don't know any child of God who desires to be bound by habitual sin. Matter of fact... The people of God are frustrated that they keep doing bad things or they say the wrong words or they think the wrong thoughts and they want to be free. And God promises to set us free. His promise is to rescue us. So hear it from that perspective. God wants to rescue you from those things that are ensnaring you and keeping you from truly escaping into the freedom that Messiah came to deliver to us. In that same article I was reading, the author went on to say the Hebrew verb, natsal, again, often in the hiffel stem here, that word is hitzalti, means to rescue or to snatch away. One who needs to be rescued, hear this, is someone who cannot affect his own deliverance. Someone who must seek help outside of himself. You see, comma, religion tries to tell you you could do it by your own works, by your own mitzvot, by your own efforts. To be rescued means you can't do it. But God, when you put your trust in him, will rescue you. And he will do it. Left by itself, the first clause could have suggested a picture in which Israel, right, and God worked together to extricate her from the burden of slavery. But the second promise makes it clear that Israel was helpless in that cylinder. Their shackles were off, but they couldn't get out and needed to be rescued. Every time we raise the second cup of the Seder, And bless the Lord of our salvation. We need to be reminded that our deliverance was, is, and will be all of his doing. Do you hear that? All of his doing. Not our doing. His doing. And that we were and are helpless to secure our own rescue. With that said, the same holds true for those who get entangled in sin. Or those who never appropriated by faith the freedom they need from habits and deceptions, even though they may believe on Yeshua, they're heaven-bound, but they haven't appropriated that same faith to be free of these habits and sins that beset them, as the Brit Chadashah tells us, that some are beset by sin. And it's not a good place to be in, and the people of God don't like it, and nor should you. Yeshua promises to bring freedom. It says in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom. Remember when Yeshua was having the discussion with the Prashim? And they would say, well, we've never been, you know, in bondage. Right? And Yeshua was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> 
course you're in bondage. Of course you need a touch from, from me. And that's the exact reason why Mashiach needed to come. He is called what? Our Redeemer. From something greater than Egypt. You know, the Passover Seder that we celebrate is more a spiritual event than it is just celebrating a natural event. And we'll get into that in a second. But in Galatians 5, it says, It was for freedom that Messiah set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again, subject again, to a yoke of slavery. It means that we are capable of being subject again. He says, don't do it though. Let me give you an example. You know how they used to, there's no, I don't know if you like it or don't like it, but there's no more elephants at the circuses these days. They rescued this, the, the elephant. Good for the elephant, but bad for us because we don't get to see those beautiful animals that God made. I don't know about you. I don't see an elephant every day. Dogs, yes. Cats, absolutely. Matter of fact, I look at my backyard and I see tons of squirrels. Matter of fact, my daughter complains because those squirrels eat all her apples off her apple tree. We look out and we'll see on our deck You know, on the railing, a squirrel looking at us with big, fat, pouchy cheeks, chowing down our apples. And my daughter gets so, oh, she gets so mad at those squirrels. She chases the squirrels away because that's God's promise to her, that apple tree. And I tell her, everyone has to eat, Abigail, even the squirrels. Don't worry about it. But what it's like is the way they would train the circus elephant is they would, because you remember the circus elephants, they'd go round and round. And do you know, you know, we think the lion is the most powerful animal in the jungle. It's not the lion. It's the elephant. That elephant is massive. That elephant could just, just barrel through any place he wants to go. But the way they would train this massive elephant is they would tie a string around its ankle and a post in the middle, and as the elephant would try to, he'd feel the tug of the chain, not the string, and he would stay walking in a circle. And then after months and months of training, they would remove the chain, and to their surprise, or not really, the elephant still kept walking in a circle, even though it was free. Even though that elephant could go right into that audience and tear it up, it would remain obedient to the chain it used to have. Messiah has set us free, yet some of us are still trained by those old habits, those old patterns, and we just keep walking around obedient to the taskmaster. And God says, today is the day of rescue. But let me ask you a question. What if you have been ensnared again and are struggling with sin? Is it over for you? Is that it? You're done? You're finished? No. I want to say this. God is still in the business of rescuing us from slavery to sin, a slavery that we cannot extricate ourselves from on our own. Friends, I've known this many times in my past. You know, as God grows you up in the Lord, there comes times where God deals with you over certain issues. Bad habits, sinful thoughts, Lashon Hara, which we'll get into. And he deals with you. And you have to go to God and you have to seek freedom. Even though you're serving him, even though you love him. God wants to rescue. There isn't a believer, like I said, I know, who wants to stay in those habitual sins. Everyone wants to be free from those And look what it says in Romans 6. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master. 
If someone can usher, perhaps, give me a little water. I would love that. So how does that happen then? Do you just tell sin, you shall not be my master? Is it that easy? You just say, I will not struggle with this sin anymore. Thank you. I will not struggle with this sin anymore. And that's it, and it's done. Don't you wish it was that easy? No. It doesn't happen like that. And I suggest that we go to the only one that can rescue us from these things. Remember, we need rescue. We can't figure it out on our own. We can't self-discipline it out. We need God to rescue us. Here are some common areas where people struggle for freedom. Anger. Whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, says the word of God. Not only is habitual anger a sin... Hear me. Listen to me. Not only is habitual anger a sin, it'll ruin relationships. Yeah, you go around being an angry bird your whole life, around your family, around workmates, and you see how many people want to hang out with you. Be an angry bird as a boss and see how many people are signing up to work for you. People are saying, no thanks, I don't need that. And so we have to understand that anger will destroy relationships. Some people struggle with anger for, and for all their effort, because they don't want to be angry. But for all their effort, for all their trying, they still can't seem to get free of it. Well, Anger is not good. Anger is not your friend. It will ruin your testimony. But hear this. God can and will rescue you from anger. Say, God will rescue me from anger. The second one is pride. Oh, yeah, pride. Look what it says in Yeshayahu chapter 2 and verse 12. Yes, Adonai Tzivaot has a day in store for all who are proud and lofty. For all who are lifted high to be humiliated. Some people have a problem with being prideful. And the enemy would love to keep you there. And if you struggle with that, he wants to keep you puffed up. And thinking you're the cat's meow and wants you in pride. Do you know pride was the main sin of Hasatan himself? Pride carries with it the very DNA of Satan. That he said, I will exalt my... Think about this. The created is saying to the creator, I will exalt myself above the throne of God. And God said, oh, you will. Will you? <laughs> and you see how it ended for him, his pride, right? Got him removed from, from heaven. Pride's a bad thing. But God can and will rescue you from pride. He will. He's in the business of rescuing. The next one is a critical spirit. A critical spirit, listen, I want you to ask yourselves and allow the spirit of God to touch you. Because if you have one of these things, God wants you free. He doesn't want to condemn you. He wants to free you. All right? A critical spirit is a negative attitude of heart that seeks to condemn, tear down, and destroy others with words. I've been the victim of a critical spirit. I'm sure you have. Where people like to just talk negatively and tear and rip and destroy. In contrast, constructive criticism involves opinions that are meant to build up. A critical spirit creates blind spots in a person's heart and mind, causing them to believe they are being constructive when in fact they're tearing others down. God says, let your words be full of grace, seasoned with salt. That's what God says. Full of grace, seasoned with salt. And I want you to hear me. God can and will rescue you from a critical spirit. Critical spirit, I'll tell you what, will tear up 
your bones. That besetting sin of being critical. There's some people that when they go to anything, they're just critical. And they don't do it like me, and that's not how it needs to be done. Just critical. Oh boy, that's just besetting. That besetting sin will tear you up from the inside out. But here is God can and will rescue you from a critical spirit. Sexual perversion. God knows we live in a land and a time where sexual perversion is at probably its height. And look what the scripture says. Among you there should not even be mentioned sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed. These are utterly, utterly inappropriate for God's holy people. Also out of place are obscenity and stupid talk or coarse language. Instead you should be giving thanks for, for of this you can be sure. Listen, every sexually immoral, impure, or greedy person, that is, every idolater, has no share in the kingdom of Messiah and of God. That's so consistent with the Old Covenant. God did not tolerate. Matter of fact, if you look at sexual perversion in the Tanakh, God had extreme punishments for those who were errant in that area. God didn't tolerate it in the camp of Israel. And I want to tell you, it's a cancer. One article I read said that sexual perversion is a direct sign of demonic activity. Now look at our country. Oh my goodness. Holy cow. (laughs) Turn on the TV. I mean, I find my kids, they're looking away every commercial. Because even if you find a show you can watch, the commercials are so perverse. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't want to see anyone shaking their booty. I don't want to see a, a woman hanging out of a dress. I don't want to see that. But yet, that's all there is. But here's the good news. God can and will rescue anyone struggling with this sin. Sometimes people have a bad habit. They get hooked on internet things. Because let's face it, Hasatan loves to tempt in this area. He knows men's weaknesses. (laughs) Oh, a little picture of this and a picture of that and click on this link. And then that's when you have to say, I'm not going to go. But some men give in to that and get caught up in seeing those images on a regular basis and then justifying it to themselves and to God. Well, I'm only looking, God, and I'm not really touching. And, but guess what? It has infected your heart and your mind. But here's the good news. God can and will rescue you from sexual perversion. The next area is lying. Dishonesty. Lying is listed as a sin In the Ten Commandments, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. From the earliest of times, lying was seen as sinful. It was made evident in the condemnation of the serpent's lie in God Edan, in Bereshit 3, and God's judgment upon him. God judged the serpent for telling, right, that half-truth to Chava. But here's the good news. God can and will rescue you from a lying tongue. Friends, there's some people, can I just tell you, be honest with you, who cannot tell the truth. And I'll tell you why. It's not that they want to lie. But they feel pressure from others to tell them what they want to hear. So instead of answering honestly, they lie. Now, listen, I don't want to get on you bad men, but sometimes men do this to their spouse. Your spouse comes to you, hey, did you do what I asked you to do? Humming, 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 humming. You don't want to say no because you know you should have done it. Oh, yeah, 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 I did it. Yeah, 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 I did it. Yeah, yeah, I did it. That's called lying, <laughs> that's called dishonesty. 
And you know, you say, well, Rabbi, that's just a little white, a little white lie. What's the big deal? No hurt, no foul, no harm, no foul, no big deal. But it becomes a pattern that we become accustomed to lying. And it becomes a language that we speak. As a matter of fact, isn't it funny? Yeshua said this about Hasatan. When he lies, he speaks his native language. Because he was a liar at the beginning. And he is to this day. That's what Hasatan does. He lies all the time. The only thing he tells us are lies. Sometimes mixed with a half-truth, but always a lie. Well, the good news is that God can and will rescue you from a lying tongue. He can. I've given advice to people and saying, listen, you just have to be honest no matter what the cost. It's better to deal with a couple of shekels you'll pay up front than the bars of gold you have to pay at the end (laughs) by telling a lie. Lying always comes back to hurt us. Let me give you another one in the same vein. Lashon hara. Say Lashon hara. It's evil speech. Vayikra 19 says, Do not go about as a talebearer among your people. Oh my goodness. The people of God love to gossip. I remember I was a brand new believer in the Messiah. And every time after service I'd be invited out to, to, you know, to let you get something to eat or to hang out with the believers, I found this phenomena that they boy were tearing in to the leader about everything. Tearing into him about the Sudi war, the car he drove, or the message he spoke, or and they were tearing and tearing and tearing and tearing. And I was a new believer, and I would be honest with you, that kind of grieved my spirit. And there was something about it. It's just, that is not right. I mean, we're going out to eat to have fellowship, and that's all you're doing is talking badly about the shepherd of the flock. Until eventually I said, listen, I'm not really interested. In going, I don't want any of that. I don't want a part of that. And I would defend the man of God. Because that Lashon hurrah, that evil speech, that talebearer, that gossip. It's a nasty thing. Matter of fact, on Yom Kippur, we repent of Lashon hurrah. But yet, it's a practice that is rampant in, among the people of God. So hear this. Lashon hurrah is any derogatory or damaging statement against an individual. In Hilchot De'ot, which is the Laws of Development, 7.5 Maimonides supplies a litmus test for determining whether something is or isn't Lashon Hara. Anything which, if it would be publicized, would cause the subject physical or monetary damage or would cause him anguish or fear is Lashon Hara. God can and will rescue you and me from Lashon Hara. He will, and he wants to. Because you know what happens? You go out with your friends, you invite each other over for dinner, you start talking about things, but the next thing you know, it goes into Lashon Hara. And you didn't want it to go there. That wasn't the intent of the evening or the conversation, but all of a sudden yourself, you find yourself there. And it happens time and time and time and time and time again. God wants, you don't want to do it, but you're caught in it. You're caught in the gossip and tailbearing. God wants to free you from Lashon Hara. It's not flattering to a believer, and he doesn't want you bound by it. The next one is murder. Shemot 20, 13, you shall not murder. I know a lot of translations say you shall not kill. But that is not the, tr- the correct translation. The correct translation is you shall not murder. Because obviously when people go to war, as God caused Israel to go to war many times, 
okay, then the very act of war and people dying in, in battle would be a sin against the commandment. So it's thou shalt not murder. Murder is the killing of a human being by a human being. Even to think about that act is a sin. To actually commit murder is considered one of the greatest sins a person can commit. But I'll tell you what, though we might not have committed personal murder, physical murder, a lot of us in our minds have murdered people over and over again. That's why Yeshua said, right, the Mashiach came and said, listen, I want to tell you guys, I know you you Pharisees think you have it all together, but I want to tell you this. That if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. Because that is the root of murder, is hatred. For another human being whom God has created, whom God loves, even with their foibles, even with their sins, God still loves people. Aren't you glad? (laughs) Aren't you glad? Oh my goodness. I am so glad that God is not, doesn't have these hang-ups that we have. Or else we would all be in a world of hurt, right? If God, can you imagine? You know, if God was like us, not good. Let me tell you this, God can and will will rescue you from murder. Say amen. Jealousy. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. He doesn't want us to be jealous. Human jealousy is what is considered sin. Our jealousy is synonymous with covetousness and envy. God is never shown in the scriptures to envy any person or thing. Yes, he's jealous because he describes himself as a jealous God. But in what way? He's jealous for the love of his people. He's not jealous against his people. On the other hand, we covet and envy other people's possessions, money, beauty, talent. We want to be who they are. We covet that. We envy that. We desire that. We're mad that we're not that or don't have that. That's jealousy. But guess what? God can and will rescue you from jealousy. He can and he will. And if you struggle with that, God wants to rescue you today. Idolatry. Friends, with this one, I found a really good definition of idolatry. Because most people can't really relate to idolatry. Because what we say is, well, I don't sit, I don't bow before a statue. I don't pay homage to anything, but hear this definition. First, let's hear the scripture. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Idolatry is the selfish sin of substitution in which we devote ourselves to worship something or someone in place of God. It is foremost a sin of covetousness a covetous heart that leads us to desire more than what God provides. And to trust, here's the crux, then to trust something or someone lesser than God to satisfy our wants and needs. We look to our employer to satisfy our needs. That's why God calls us to tithe. Do you know what? It's a direct assault against idolatry. It's telling God, no, I'm trusting you, God. I'm trusting you. And not the economy. Can I I tell you as a rabbi how many times throughout the 30 years I hear about the economy? Can I tell you something? God does not live in human economy. God doesn't see the economy and say, oh my goodness, I'm going to struggle getting food to my people. Not at all. Because his economy is a different economy. Listen to this. The word burdens of the first promise suggest that which is uncomfortable and worrisome. But the English slaves, hear this, of the second promise, the word is avodah. Put that up. 
I will free you from being slaves. What would you expect that word to be? It's amazing when you look in the Hebrew and you find that that word is avodah. What? I thought avodah meant work. I thought avodah meant worship. Think of this. Israel, imprisoned under the yoke of Egypt, was in danger of falling prey to her idolatrous worship. And in fact, they did, didn't they? What happened when Moshe went up to the mountain and was longer than they expected? What did they do? Did they say, oh, let's praise Adonai Hashem who just rescued us, who showed his might and his wonders, his signs? Did he do that? No, what they did is they said, hey, Aharon, make us a calf. Right? That's pretty scary. That you could just come from being in that environment and then fall right into idolatry. Trusting something or someone lesser than God to satisfy our wants and needs is idolatry. This fact is made all the more clear when after the exodus, again, you see these same Israelites begging Aharon, make us a god of gold. And they began to even think, maybe there are other gods other than Hashem. Maybe some of those Egyptian gods are real. So make us a calf and we'll worship it. Give us some provision from another source and we'll worship it. I want to just say this, God can and will rescue you from idolatry. So let's look at our, my second point, which is so much shorter than the first one. As we have established, our bondage to sin has left us unable, say unable, to rescue ourselves. If you have any of those besetting sins and you can't get free, the good news is you can't do it yourself, but God can. We simply cannot find our way to freedom because we are shackled by the chains of self-centeredness. Our only hope is that one stronger than our fetters should come and rescue us from prison. The purpose of listing these common sins, like I said, was not to make you feel bad and say, oh my goodness, I have that one and that one and that one and that one. It's to free you because I know as a rabbi that you hate that you do it. You hate that you have a sharp tongue with your spouse. You hate that you said something dishonest again. After you, you vowed to God, I'll never lie to my wife again. And here you have it and then you do it again. God, I'm going to be truthful and I fell again. God, I'm going to be holy and I fell again. And boy, that really, oh, that... That's a horrible thing. God comes to rescue us from feeling dirty and worthless. The God that we serve is not interested in condemnation. He's interested in rescuing us from those things. So how are you rescued? Over the years, I've seen many, many believers bound by sin. Some sins, hideous. Hideous. And note note the thing is, these are the same people that if you would see them in a worship service, you would say, oh my gosh, those are the most godly people. Baruch And you find out they have some hideous besetting sins for years. How do you get free from something like that? What's the God-ordained recipe for freedom? And I'm telling you, it's happened in my own life. So I know it's not fairy tale. It's real. It works. And it starts... By first acknowledging that you struggle with an area. 
You know what I find about believers? We're an odd bunch. We want to say, no, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. I'm okay, I don't have a problem. No, 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 I'm okay. I don't need to talk to the rabbi. I don't need to, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Yet we'll go home and struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle. God doesn't want you struggling. He wants you free. The first thing you have to do to be free is acknowledge that you have a problem in an area. Whatever area it is. Maybe I named it today. Maybe I didn't name it. Maybe for you it's a different area. We're going into Pesach, friends. And God doesn't want his people bound. And then we must confess to God. Confess to God. And listen, when we do that, don't make the mistake, and this is what a lot of people, don't make the mistake of justifying your actions by saying something like this. God, I know my anger is wrong. But you know how that person infuriates me. God, you know what they've done to me. I know my anger is wrong, but, circle the word but, I know my anger is wrong, but leave it at this. God, you know my anger, my lying, my perversion, my hatred, my jealousy, my idolatry, my Lashon Hurrah is wrong, period. Period. I want to tell you, why don't we see the power of God like we read about besetting sin? Same reason you don't have your freedom, but it's not, you don't have to stay bound. God wants you free. Someone could get excited about that. It's okay. It's wrong, period. And before you go any further, we must see the wrong. I want to tell you how I've gotten free from every chain and shackle of hell that it's put on my life. Realize I walked for 25 years in the world. So when I came to faith in the Messiah... I had some baggage. I had some shackles. And the way I got free, and I mean really free from every single one of them, is right there. I first acknowledged it before God, which again is a little uncomfortable because you're taking responsibility for something you do. Then I confessed before God, vedui, right, that we do at Yom Kippur, confessions to God, that God... I've done these things and these things are wrong and sinful. And then listen to me. This is critical. A time of really letting God show you how nasty those things are in your heart. Until you see how nasty Lashon Hara is or how nasty sexual perversion is, how anti-God it is. It's the antithesis of who God is. How lying is the opposite of God. And that you're doing it. And when you get grieved in your own heart that you have broken the heart of God. And you say, God, I see it and it's disturbing and God forgive me. And God have mercy on me. God, I can't seem to break its power but I see that it is a stench in your sight. God, please have mercy on me, your servant. That gets God's attention. And I could tell you every time in my life where I've come to God like that, this is what God has done. He's reached down from heaven and I could feel the chain being unlocked. And I could sense the rope being lowered from the top. And I could feel the presence of the living God lifting me out of those things. Only to find out days later, hey God, I'm not struggling with that anymore. God, that which had me bound, I'm free. I'm not struggling with those thoughts. I'm not struggling with those actions. I'm free. And why was I free? Because God rescued me. But it took me to truly repent before God, to truly understand. how. Because if you don't think your sin is really a sin or really that bad, what you do is you justify it, you pet it, And when you do that, it stays like a little friend that's not so friendly. 
It stays around. But when you see it for what it is, God rescues you from it, and it's the most guys. I want to. It is the most liberating experience since salvation when God sets you free from those besetting sins. Hear this: God will always rescue those who repent, and He will extricate us from these wrong and damaging habits. God grants repentance unto life, so it is nothing less than a miracle of God. It's God's miracle for us. We, on the other hand, have to respond by our actions of obedience. Hear me, you got to take this message seriously, or else if you don't, you go home and you run the danger of continually being ensnared by these types of things. Guys, is there strife in your home? Is there strife in your home because of a sharp tongue? It doesn't have to be. There could be peace in your home. You see, it is in this moment of true repentance, of renouncing sin and turning to God, that God's power and with our cooperation breaks the power of sin over our lives and rescues us and brings freedom to our hearts to live totally and completely free. Look what it says in Acts 13, 19. Now repent, change your mind and attitude toward God and turn to him so that he can cleanse away your sins and send you wonderful times of refreshment. From the president, who, who wants wonderful times of refreshment? Anyone? Don't you? Doesn't that sound, that sounds like better than a Coke commercial. I always like the Coke with the dripping, the cold, ice cold, it looks so refreshing although it's not. But wonderful times of spiritual refreshment God wants to give us for those who repent. Kepha Bet, 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is looking for us to come to him in repentance. Listen to me. He's not looking to condemn you. He's not looking to say, hey, I got you. Bing. He's not looking to point you out and say, look at them, how bad they are. No. He's looking to rescue you. I'm telling you, don't try to go it alone. Hear your rabbi. Many do this. They say, I can overcome, I can overcome, I can climb out. I can conquer. These habits and these sins on my own. The truth is, we cannot. We need God's help, but we must cooperate. Look, I'm closing with this verse from Yeshayahu. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest, repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Listen, but you would have none of it. No, I don't want to do it that way. I want to find my own way out. I don't really need to do that, God. I'm going to just self-discipline myself, not to get angry ever again. So yeah, that works out for you. He said, but you would have none of it. I want to say this, in love, take God up on his generous offer and perform genuine repentance. And then watch God do something so wonderful and so liberating in your heart and life that you wouldn't have believed it. I've experienced it many times over my 30 years of walking with God. It is wonderful. And he wants to do it for you too. God loves you. He wants to rescue you. Allow it. You know what? I thought of that joke. You know the joke of the minister that's on top of the house with the flood coming? Everyone knows that joke. And the boat comes by and he says, no, I'm praying, waiting for God to deliver me. Right? And then the, you know, the other vehicle comes by. No, no, I'm waiting for God. And then the helicopter comes. You know, I'm waiting for God. God's going to deliver me. The 
person drowned, goes to heaven, and says, God, how come you didn't rescue me? He said, I tried to rescue you. I sent you to boat, the plane, the helicopter, but you didn't take me up on it. Now, that's a funny little story, but the truth is God gives us ways to be rescued from these things in our life. And too often we pass to things on our own. Allow him to do it. And let me ask you, everyone to look at me for the next few minutes. We're closing, but I want you to hear this. Perhaps you're here and you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Messiah. God only has one way for mankind to be right before him. He established it in the Torah. As Rina so eloquently laid out through substitutionary sacrifice. The innocent animal for the guilty worshiper. The innocent blood of the animal atones for the guilty worshiper who is sin. Do you think God, Hashem, has left us all these years with no way? When that was the requirement, the foundation, the way he showed us early what needed to be done in order for men to be right with him. Oh, God sent the Messiah at the right time. Do you know that the Messiah came before the destruction of the second temple prophesied in Daniel the prophet that said when he would come. And even many scholars had to admit that many rabbinic scholars you know, some that have come to faith of reading Daniel. See, it says Mashiach needed to come, but he didn't come. And they realized, wait, there was one who came just prior to the destruction of the second temple. And that was Yeshua, the Messiah, who claimed to be the Messiah. And he walked into that second temple and prophesied that it would be destroyed. And it was destroyed just like he said. So here's the truth. If Yeshua isn't the Messiah, then no Messiah is coming. Because that second temple is thoroughly destroyed. God sent the Messiah just at the right time to rescue you, to rescue me from these sins that keep us separated from God. Shed his own his holy blood so that we can live in a right relationship to God. If you've never done that, You can do it today. Just like he told Abraham was by faith. Still by faith. Instead of putting trust in the animal, he put our trust in the Messiah. And the sacrifice he made, the shedding of his blood, cleanses us from sin. I want everyone to pray with me. This is important. If you've ever done this, this is the life-changing event that could happen in your life. My life was forever changed when I said shortly prayer because I was a, a Jewish man looking and saying, "Is the Messiah? Is the, the Messiah?" Then, as I looked through the book, I found that he is the Messiah. He is. He is. And no, it's true. No. God wants to rescue you. Just pray with me. You want to be rescued. Abba, I do repent of my sins of the habits that you find vulgar in this life. Lord, I ask for your forgiveness, and I ask for mercy. God, forgive me of the sin of rejecting Messiah Yeshua, trying to earn my own way to heaven, and being right with you. Father, today I choose to receive Yeshua, my son.